And once again, I just want to um, extend a welcome to you. Uh, it's great to see you, especially if you're visiting with us. My name is Ben Griffith. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's just great to have you here. Uh, we're, con- we're continuing to make our way through the Gospel of Mark, and we find ourselves in Mark chapter 2, verse 13 through 22. You see it printed in your order of worship. And in our passage this morning, get ready. Jesus gets himself into a real mess. He really steps in it this time. We find Jesus this morning in our passage at the wrong place with the wrong people at the wrong time. This is the kind of situation that no self-respecting Jew would ever want to get himself into. It's terrible PR for Jesus. By the end of the day, Instagram and Facebook and Twitter would have been blowing up with the drama and and the scandal of it all. The rumor mills would have been churning, and Jesus would have been losing credibility with all of the respectable, cultured people in Jewish society by the second. This morning, we catch Jesus at a party with all of the wrong people. He's in the home of the most despicable man in the city, and he's partying with all of the people that the good Jewish, that the, the Jewish mothers back in that day taught their kids to avoid and to stay away from. And Jesus is partying with them, <laughs> laughing and having a good time as the center, of the, the center of the party. And he's communicating to them and to the people around him, these are my kind of people. I'm with them and they're with me. <laughs> and it would have been all over social media. If photographs had existed by that point, photographs from this party would have followed Jesus for the rest of his ministry because religious leaders just don't do this. What was he doing? What is Jesus doing at this party with all of the wrong people, and what does it show us about him? Let's read and find out. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. This is God's word. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins." But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that now the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. 
and that you, O Spirit of God, would make Jesus Christ more beautiful to the eyes of our hearts, we pray in your name. Amen. So there's a lot of inviting that goes on in our passage this morning that we just read. A lot of, a lot of invitations are thrown around. Jesus goes out of his way to invite the scumbag of the town, this tax collector named Levi, to invite him to follow him. And Levi does. And the first thing that Levi does is turn around and extend an invite to Jesus to come to a party at his house. Luke, when he records this narrative, this, this incident, Luke tells us that Levi made him a great feast at his house. So Jesus invites Levi. Levi turns around and invites Jesus. And both of these invitations set the stage for the grand invitation. The grand invitation that, that is the center of this passage and that, and that is the lens through which we'll approach this passage. And it's in verse 32 where Jesus says, I came not to invite the righteous, but sinners. That Greek word there, to invite, means to call, to summons, to draw in. Jesus says, I came to extend an invitation. I came to invite, to call, not the righteous, but sinners. Jesus here is letting us into the heart of his mission, into the very center of his purpose. Why has Jesus gone to all of this trouble? Why has the word become flesh and dwelt among us? Why, so far in Mark, has he come to be baptized by John the Baptist? Why has he been starved to death, nearly to death in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil? Why is he performing all of these miracles and teaching and preaching and casting out demons? Why is he going to do everything else that he does for the rest of the gospel of Mark? It's to extend an invitation, to invite I came not to invite or to call the righteous, but sinners. If Jesus had a business card, this would be on it. This is his mission, his purpose, what he came to do, to extend an invitation. This morning what we're going to do is look at this passage through the lens of that invitation and ask three questions. Who is doing the inviting? In other words, what, is Mark, what does Mark tell us about Jesus who does the inviting? And then secondly, who's invited and then thirdly, what are we invited to? So first of all, who does the inviting? If, if, if Jesus says that he came to extend an invitation, what does Mark tell us here about Jesus who does the inviting? Well, notice that, um, that Mark tells us that as Jesus was passing along, he passed by a tax collector named Levi, whose life changes with these two words from Jesus, follow me. And Levi does. And it's, it's likely that Levi had been around Jesus before. This probably wasn't their first encounter. Uh, Levi might have, have been around the crowd listening to Jesus preach. Maybe he had watched a few miracles be performed. It was likely that he had encountered Jesus before. But in any case, Levi gets up from the middle of whatever he was doing at the tax booth and gets up and follows Jesus. And I love it. What is Levi's first inclination to do? What's his response? What's his kind of guttural response to this invitation that Jesus has given him? It's to throw a party. It's to throw a feast. Um, Mark, who is not very much on details, leaves this out. But Luke tells us that, um, that Levi made him a great feast and that there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. So Levi accepts this invitation to follow Jesus and his first inclination. The reason we know that, that Levi gets it 
is that he throws a huge party. And who's on his invite list? When Levi goes home and he starts to flip through his, his address book to see who he can invite to this party in Jesus' honor, who makes the guest list? Well, notice it's all of the bottom of the barrel, outcast, reject nobodies in the town. <laughs> Those are the only people in Levi's guest book. They're the only people that Levi knew would come if he invited them. Because like Levi, I mean, or like Garth Brooks, Levi has friends in low places. They're the only friends that Levi has. They're the only people that would come to a party that someone like this throws. Why? Because he's a tax collector. If you know anything about the Gospels, you're familiar with how, how much of a disgrace tax collectors were in the Jewish community. He was the scumbag of his town. It's hard to like overemphasize this, but as a tax collector... In that day, a Jewish tax collector collecting taxes for the Roman Empire, he had already been excommunicated from church. He had been kicked out of the synagogue, couldn't come back. He did not have a, a religious community. He was disqualified from being a witness in any kind of legal court setting. That was how low people thought about tax collectors. They just couldn't be trusted. Levi was hated, rejected, and despised both by the people that he was working for, the Romans, and by the people that he was collecting taxes from, his own people, the Jews. Everyone saw him as a traitor, as a turncoat, a scumbag. It's really hard to overemphasize just how hated and how much of a reject Levi was. That also means, though, that, that leads us to this, that Levi was, according to the Jewish standards of that day, he was ceremonially unclean. He could not just walk into the temple. He, he had been kicked out of it. Um, Levi was ceremonially unclean because of his dealings, because his business meant stealing from people. To even be around someone like this in close contact meant that you would catch his uncleanness. You would have had to go to the temple if you were a self-respecting Jew after paying your taxes and clean your hands and wash up after just breathing the air of this kind of person. Because remember, this kind of uncleanness, it was contagious. You could pick it up. <laughs> to be around in close proximity, to breathe the air of this kind of person, was it would contaminate you. But look at what Jesus is doing. Look at where we catch Jesus. He's not just in close proximity with Levi and all of his scumbag friends. He's eating and he's drinking with them. He's at a party with them. <laughs> to sit down across the table back then in that culture and to eat and to drink with someone, to, to, to have fellowship with them over a meal, everyone knew what that meant. It meant I'm with you and you're with me. And there's no distance between us. And and we're fine. We're great. It meant to be in fellowship and friendship and close communion. To eat and to dine and to feast with someone meant, I'm with you and you're with me. And look at what Jesus is doing. He's not just sitting back like a fly in the wall at this party. He's the life of the party. He's at He's, he's at the middle of the table eating and drinking with all of these wrong kinds of people. He's not just standing awkwardly in the, in the corner. He's communicating to them, and he's communicating to all the people that are watching that would have had their iPhones out, you know, Facebook living this scandalous moment. He's communicating, 
these are my kind of people. This is who I came for, is he saying. Now, what is this scene? I mean, just let your, let your imagination run wild, what that would have looked like and sounded like, the ruckus and the roar and the, the, the sounds of the party and seeing Jesus right there in the middle of it having a great time. What does that scene tell us about Jesus who came to do the inviting? Well, one of the things that it tells us is this, and we've already seen this before in Mark. Mark wants us to know that Jesus' health is more contagious than any of our sickness. That his cleanness is more contagious than the worst kinds of uncleanness that he comes into contact with. That Jesus' purity is more contagious than our impurity. When Jesus comes into contact with our sin, he doesn't catch our sin. We catch his cleanness. You can't make Jesus dirty. He can make you clean. In other words, and Jesus uses the language of being a physician, but he's the great physician who doesn't need to wear a mask and, and surgical gloves and social distance himself from the worst kinds of people and the worst expressions of sin and depravity that he comes into contact with. What you're ashamed of about yourself. Your history. Those things about you that you are the most ashamed of. That you want to keep in the closet, out of the light, and you don't want anyone to discover. Because if they knew, you would do what they, you would, they would do what you expect them to do. Just walk away. Because they wouldn't know what to do with it. But here we see Jesus interacting with the very worst that humanity has to offer. And he's not scared of what he finds. It doesn't scare him. There's nothing that he encounters that he says, I can't deal with this. Dane Ortland says that we naturally think of, of Jesus reaching out to touch us, reaching out to fellowship with us, the kind of, in the way that a little boy might reach out to touch a slug for the first time with his face screwed up and cautiously extending an arm and giving a yelp of disgust upon contact and instantly withdrawing. But that's not the Jesus that we have here, is it? Here we see Jesus showing up, saying that he came to, to fellowship and to draw near to sinners. Not just to draw near and keep a good social distance and lob some help from a distance. You get better and then come see me. No. He is sitting across the table with them, fellowshipping in intimate community because he's saying, this is who I came for. This is who I came for. And, and when you come, he's saying that when he comes into contact with the very worst that we have to bring to the table, that it doesn't hold a candle to what he has to bring to the table. So his health is so much more contagious than our sickness. It's one of the things that Marx wants us to see here. But the second thing is, is this. So what, what else do we see about Jesus here? I want you to notice this little almost throwaway line that Mark gives us in verse 15, where Mark writes, Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus at table, for there were many who followed him. There were many who followed him. He's giving us a window into the kind of crowd that Jesus was attracting. And it's an incredible window into the heart of Jesus, into the heart of who Jesus is, because there was something incredibly compelling 
and powerful and attractive and, and appealing to all of these rejects and all of these nobodies, all of these outsiders. They saw something in Jesus that they did not see in any of the other religious leaders or preachers in that day. What was it? What was it that attracted them so powerfully to Jesus? It was this. When they were around Jesus and when they made eye contact with Jesus, when they heard him preach and interacted with him afterwards, they didn't catch the faintest whiff of condemnation. They couldn't smell it (laughs) because they were used to smelling it. When they got around the other religious leaders of that day, they were used to breathing in the toxic air of condemnation and shame and condescension and superiority. That was the air that they were used to breathing from the religious leaders. But they get around Jesus and they smell something different. It was, the fr- it was, it was some kind of fresh air that if they had the, the, the religious, the theological vocabulary to put a name to it, they would have called it grace. That's what they're smelling in Jesus. That's what they're identifying. That's what's so different and compelling and beautifully attractive about Jesus. Because they knew who they were. And they knew that Jesus knew who they were. And at the moment where they were expecting him to walk away, he reaches out a hand and he smiles at them and he says, Welcome. Come and sit down. That's what grace is. Receiving at the very moment that you expect condemnation, receiving favor and delight and a smile. And it was just in the air that they breathed around Jesus. And it was so beautiful. Do people smell that air around us? Do they smell that air around you and me? Do you smell that air around Jesus? Is that, does that make Jesus compelling to you? Has his grace warmed your heart? <laughs> because he still has so many that are following him today, doesn't he? So that's a few things of what we see about Jesus who does the inviting. The second thing that we see here, we, we ask the question, who's invited? If Jesus came to extend an invitation, then who is it that he invites? Who receives an invitation? Well, notice in verse 17, Jesus says in response to the Pharisees' question, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, y'all, this is shocking. Get ready, because Jesus explicitly says, there's a group of people that I came for, and there's a group of people I didn't come for. Now, that doesn't really sound like the kind of Jesus that we're used to, the John 3.16 kind of Jesus who came for the whole world. But Jesus explicitly says, there's a group of people I came for and a group of people I didn't come for. The sick need the physician, but the well don't. I've not come to call the righteous. I've come to call sinners. What do you do with that? What is Jesus saying? Well, it's really easy to hear Jesus saying here that, I, that there's really two kinds of people in this world. There's the righteous and the unrighteous, the, the well and the sick. And the sick, well, they're the kind of people that really need my help. Like, it's obvious. These are the obvious cases. These are the people with baggage. These are the people with histories. These are the people that really need my attention, right? Like, if squeaky wheels get all the grease, like, They're all the squeaky wheels. 
and they're the kind of people that I came for. This is the JV squad, and they really need my help, so I came for them. But this other group over here, the well, well, this is the varsity group. This is the A, this is the A team. This is the group of more spiritually strong, capable, mature folks that, you know, I can dust them off a little bit, send them to heaven on their own. I'll see y'all at the finish line because I need to bring these people along. That's what it can sound like Jesus is saying here, but that's actually the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying. Look again. He says, those who are well, the well, they have no need of a physician. Now, it might seem like the people in this well category, the folks who are healthy or well, like they have everything that they need. But Jesus is saying that there's one thing that they're missing. There's one thing that they don't have, and that means that their condition is much more dangerous and much more desperate than even the people in the sick category. What is it? They have no need. They don't need the physician. They have no awareness of their lack. They have no awareness of their emptiness, no recognition of their deficit. They're they're, they're blind to their real condition. Those that are in the well category, Jesus is saying, are actually the most distant from the physician because a physician is the last person in the world that they think that they need. They have no need. Listen to what Jesus is saying. He's saying there is one thing that can put you out of reach of my grace. And it's not your sin. It's your righteousness. He's saying there's one thing that can distance you from me the most, and it's not all the ways that you don't measure up. It's all the ways that you think that you do measure up. He's saying it's not all the bad things about you that distance you from me. It's all the things that you think are good about you. In other words, there's one thing that can disqualify you from Jesus' invitation, and it's thinking that you qualify for it. Those who are well have no need of a physician. Now get ready. This is scary because it means that we can live an outwardly religious life. We can be doing all of the right things. We can have a clean, spotless record, not like those other people, We can have theological precision. We can have moral discipline. We cannot have all of the regrets and the baggage that we think those really needy people have. And we can be a universe away from Jesus because he's the last thing in the universe that deep down you really think you need. Maybe you've heard the phrase, an apple a day keeps the doctor away. Well, in in, in in terms of physical health, that's a good thing, right? But... If apples a day keep Jesus away, then that means that our pride and our self-righteousness and our leaning on the apples, on doing the right things, are keeping Jesus away. What about you this morning? What about you and me this morning? What's the posture of your heart right now? Did you wake up this morning to come to church believing that you are a well person or a sick person? Because look, they can both lead to the same destination, can't they? But the underlying heart motivation could not be more different. Do you have this morning the one thing that qualifies you for Jesus' invitation? That being an awareness that you don't qualify 
I love the way that Sally Lloyd-Jones illustrates this in her Jesus Storybook Bible. She's telling the story from 2 Kings chapter 5 about Naaman, this famous Syrian general who is rich beyond imagination, but he has leprosy. And he hears about this prophet in Israel who can heal people from leprosy. And so he goes to find Elisha, and he takes with him this wagon load of gold and, and everything with him. But he's really disappointed when Elisha doesn't even open the door to see him. He just sends a servant out to tell him, if you just go and, and, and bathe in the Jordan River, then you'll be clean. And Naaman is so offended. He says, just wash in that, slimy, in that slimy, stinky river. Any old person can wash in a river. I'm Naaman. I'm important. <laughs> I should do something important so that God will heal me. And he rides off in a rage. And then she writes this, of course, you and I both know that that's not how God does things. All that Naaman needed was nothing. And it was the one thing that Naaman didn't have. Jesus is saying, this is who I came to invite, to call to myself. This is who qualifies for my invitation, those who know that they need me. Those who know that they have nothing to contribute He's saying the nothing that you have qualifies you for the everything that I have. But if you come thinking that you've got something, then it disqualifies you for the everything that I have to give you. Do you have nothing this morning? It's really hard to have nothing. We don't want to be there. But it's the doorway to blessing. <laughs> Last thing on this, on this front here. Um, it's, it's easy to... It's easy to fall into thinking that sanctification, um, that's the, the word for this, this lifelong process of, of God by his spirit and by his grace, by the means of grace, conforming us more and more into the image of Jesus, letting us hate our sin more and live more and more to righteousness. It's, it's easy to think of that process of sanctification as the process of Jesus bringing us from this category of those who are sick and needy more and more into this category of those who are well and those who are righteous. That is, thinking about sanctification as a process of Jesus letting us be more self-sufficient and getting better all the time, more capable and less needy. Which is why we're so disappointed when it doesn't feel like our sanctification is progressing very much. Because, y'all, Jesus is just not interested in ever bringing us to a place where we don't need him. He's not interested in that. Which means that sanctification is actually the process of Jesus gently taking you by the hand and leading you further and further into your own need, into your own nothing, into your own emptiness and your own weakness. And it can feel like you're going backwards because your eyes are opening up more and more to who you really are because Jesus wants you to see who he really is. That's sanctification. It's, and it doesn't feel like getting better sometimes. It can feel like getting worse because Jesus is just not interested in bringing you to a place where you don't need him. So we've seen, we've seen a little bit about Jesus who does the inviting. We've seen who gets the invitation. Who does he extend the invitation to? And then thirdly, lastly, what are we invited into? This grand invitation, Jesus came to invite sinners 
But what did he invite, what does he invite you and me into? Well, it's no accident that Mark transitions here from this scene of Jesus feasting with all of the wrong kinds of people to this next scene in verses 18 and 22, where Jesus is still talking with the Pharisees about what? About feasting, about partying. Um, Because his point is that this is what I came to invite you into. I came to invite you into the joy of a feast. It's the joy of a feast that is both not yet and already here. Joy that is both in the future, that's coming at us, but joy that's also in the present that we have access to right now. Jesus' message here is that he came to invite us into joy, into the joy of a feast, and that the joy of that feast literally rips a hole in the seams of your old way of living life and of looking at God. Watch how he does this. Um, the Pharisees, they just don't understand why Jesus' disciples aren't fasting anymore, like all of the other Pharisees and the disciples of John. Fasting was a way of, especially in the Pharisees' mindset, a way of depriving yourself of things that your body needed physically so that you could be more in touch with things that your soul needs spiritually. And Jesus, he recommends fasting. It's a good spiritual practice. But you know what's interesting? It's In the Old Testament, there was only one specifically prescribed and commanded day of fasting, and it was a day of atonement, one day a year. But by this point, the Pharisees had concocted this this complex kind of um, system of fasting so that they now required two days of fasting a week, (laughs) two a week. They wanted to go overboard because they thought, you know, if God sees how intense and serious I am, about repenting of my sin and dealing with my uncleanness, then I can be sure that he'll forgive me. If God, God needs to see that I mean business. And so I'm going to mean business. I'm going to go way overboard and go the extra mile and demonstrate how serious I am because then I'll know and then God will know that we're on good terms. And that's what this this whole series and this whole mindset of fasting was meant to contribute but, or to, to, to contribute to. But you, you know what that can lead to? That can really easily lead to a mindset of just morbid introspection, of just spiritual navel-gazing and a, a kind of obsession on yourself and all the things that you know are wrong about you, a kind of obsession with all the things that you need to get better about and repent of so that your eyes are only seeing you and you're never looking up and seeing God. And when your religion turns into into seeing how much effort you can put into convincing God that you're really serious about your sin, when that's the main point of your, when that's the main focus of your relationship with God is convincing him how serious you are about your sin, then it's all about you. And it's really not about God, is it? And that's not the gospel. Listen to what the Pharisees asked Jesus. They say, Jesus, your disciples aren't fasting. What's different? In other words, it's like they're saying, Jesus, you need to go wipe that smile off your disciples' faces and tell them to get back to work and tell them to get serious about getting right with God because they're acting like something's changed. 
They're acting like the fast has ended and that the feast has started. And Jesus says, yes, you're right. Can the wedding guests fast while the, groom, while the bridegroom is with them? Jesus is saying, I have come to break the fast and to invite you into the feast, to invite you right now into the joy of the feast that's to come because the main thing about the feast, the main thing about the feast that is to come is the bridegroom and he's standing right here with you, which means that the fast has ended and that the feast has begun and I've come to invite you into the joy of that feast. I've come to invite you, Jesus says, into the joy of having true table fellowship with God of sitting across the table from your Savior with your sins forgiven and your guilt covered and your shame dealt with. I've come to invite you into the joy of seeing the smile of God's face and hearing Him laugh and knowing His delight. That's the kind of joy of the feast that I've come to invite you into right now. That's what He's inviting you into. It's the, feast of the joy, it's the joy of the feast that is to come that you have access to right now because the bridegroom has come. But notice, Jesus says, be careful. He says, be careful and be on your guard because this kind of joy, the joy of the gospel, the joy of God's grace, the joy of knowing his delight in you because of nothing that you've done and everything that he's done, He's saying, get ready. That joy is going to tear apart at the seams the old life that you used to live. It's going to rip a hole in it. Just like, and he gives us these two word pictures, just like if you sew a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, when it shrinks, it will just tear a bigger hole in that garment. And then he says, just like if you put, if you put new wine into an old wineskin, when that new wine begins to expand and ferment, it's just going to tear a hole in that old, old wineskin. He says in the same way, the joy of the gospel, the joy of what you have access to, the joy of what's coming that you have access to right now is going to tear a hole in the way that you look at yourself, in the way that you look at what God's doing in this world, in the way that you relate to God. It's going to tear a hole and rip apart at the seams your old self and your old identity, your old grudges and patterns and ways of living, your old pride, because something new has come in, and it won't fit into any of the old boxes. It's the joy of the feast that is to come that's invading the sorrow and the suffering and the sadness of this world as it is now. And brothers and sisters, one day this world is literally going to tear apart at the seams and give way to something new because it just won't be able to handle the joy that comes when the bridegroom comes back for his bride. And brothers and sisters and friends, that's what he's inviting you into. The joy of that feast. The joy of God's delight in you right now. But we'll close with this. It gets even better. As if it could not get any better, it actually does. Because you're not just going to be there as a guest. You're not just going to be there as a guest of the bridegroom, as Jesus portrays here. He came to say it actually gets better. You're going to be there as the bride. 
You'll be there as the bride of the bridegroom, washed clean, knowing his joy and his delight. And y'all, there is so much that will be different in that day. There is so much that will be different and new, but there's one thing that won't be different. You cannot be any more loved than you are right now. You will be happier, but you will not be more loved. And Jesus is inviting you into the joy of that feast right now. Inviting you for the 10,000th time or for the first time to know that joy and to step into what Jesus has for you there. (laughs) Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would melt our hearts either for the first time or for the 10,000th time by your grace. Your grace that we see on full display in Jesus and in his invitation to people like us to come to him and to find everything that we need. We pray that, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.